From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Voters saw straight through it. They weren't buying it at all. This is going down by a huge, huge margin. A complicated measure designed at least in part to tamp down property taxes failed at the ballot box. Now that HH has been halted from happening, what comes next? Meanwhile, Aurora sticks with the mayor it knows. Those people that supported me believe that everyone in the city, regardless of where they lived, have a right to live without a, a fear of being a victim of a crime. And later, a life forever changed by the Club Q attack a year ago. There's no normalcy anymore because your privacy and your sense of safety has been violated on every level imaginable. There is no tax deduction for giving a vehicle away to a friend or family member, but if you donate it to a charity or other tax-exempt organization like Colorado Public Radio, you can claim a tax deduction. Your donated car, motorcycle, or truck benefits you, and it benefits CPR. Start the win-win donation process at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The idea was to ease property taxes, but voters last night rejected how Proposition HH went about it. The ballot measure also would have let government hold on to more sales and income tax to use for education. So what's next, especially for homeowners? I'll speak with a leading supporter and a key critic of HH shortly. First, CPR's Andrew Kenny. He's on our public affairs team, and he has covered this proposal since it was a mere glimmer in the legislature. Hi, Andy. Hello. Yes, a mere glimmer. Indeed, it was lawmakers who referred HH to voters. Governor Jared Polis backed it, and it was defeated in, well, gosh, the word landslide comes to mind. Yeah, not all the votes have been counted yet, but it's on track to lose by about 20 percentage points. And in the world of politics, that's a lot. That means that 60% of people were opposed. And if you look at the county by county breakdown, Ryan, it was really widespread opposition. It looks like there were only a couple of counties where people actually liked this in the majority. You know, it was like Denver, Boulder, Pitkin, where it succeeded, and almost everywhere else, voters said, no thanks. Andy, for possibly the last time, can I have you remind us what Prop HH would have done? Oh, yes. This has been like my mantra. The top (laughs) line is that it would have reduced property tax rates across the state effectively, lowered property tax bills. But it also would have let voter, excuse me, would have let the state eventually hold on to more and more of what we could call Tabor refund money, uh, keeping tax dollars and spending it on education mostly instead of refunding it. So lower property taxes, but also less Tabor refunds. And, uh, you know, that could have eventually added up to significant new investment in public schools as well. And, you know, there was also a bunch of smaller tax policies kind of bundled in there that you could have found out through the Blue Book or uh, through our coverage as well. Democrats control so many of the levers of power in this state, but they just couldn't sell HH to voters. Yeah, and this was a pretty big setback for them. This was, first of all, positioned as their big answer to property taxes rising, which we all know they've gone up sharply. Democrats said, hey, we're going to do something about it. Here it is. 
but then their idea just got walloped. And it really shows, I think, that voters were either skeptical or outright opposed to the idea of changing Tabor, or in some cases, they simply said, this is doing too much, I don't trust it. Uh, you know, we heard from voters who thought it was either too complex or even outright intentionally deceptive. Here's a voter I met in Old Town, Arvada. I spent a considerable amount of time researching it um, because I wanted to know all the ins and outs. And on the ballot, there, it, the way it's worded is not always very clear. So for that reason, I spent some time researching it. And, you know, I think that some of the campaign messaging contributed to that confusion, because if you looked at the ads on TV, the website, all the messaging was about how this was cutting property taxes. But if you met with the supporters in person, if somebody knocked on your door, you might have heard that it was also funding schools. And so I feel like some people felt like they were only getting part of the message about what this was about and that they weren't getting a full picture of what it was doing to state spending and Tabor refunds. Uh, but opponents definitely did not stay quiet about those aspects. No, that was their big message. Opponents pushed the idea that HH was a Trojan horse, that they were trying to get you in the door with property tax cuts in order to undermine the taxpayer's bill of rights. And voters saw straight through it. They weren't buying it at all. This is going down by a huge, huge margin. That was Michael Fields. Politicians tried to fool us and they didn't get away with it. That was still Michael Fields. He's a conservative <laughs> strategist uh, on the line now as well, who led the effort to defeat Proposition HH. He was celebrating at a watch party in Aurora last night. Indeed, I'll speak with Michael in just a few minutes. But Andy, you talked with backers of Prop HH after the results came in. What do they make of the outcome? There is a lot of second guessing and uh, kind of day after quarterbacking going on. You know, there was the idea that Prop HH was too complex. Um, there was the idea that they didn't build a really good coalition. They didn't get business really behind it in a big way. They didn't get local government behind it. Here is Scott Wasserman, a progressive who was a key supporter of it. I think it tried to swallow the whole fish, right? It tried to solve our whole fiscal problem. And Wasserman thinks that if Democrats want to do this kind of big tax reform, they're going to need to get more people on board and have a more cohesive message next time they try it. I, I think it just says to me, you know, that this wasn't good enough and that legislators need to get to work. You know, we need to build we need to build a coalition and that's going to be hard work. One other thing you said is it's just hard to fight a war on multiple fronts when you've got opposition from conservatives, opposition from local governments and just general skepticism. I mean, it's interesting because we have seen different groups like the ones you've mentioned come together occasionally on fiscal policy. I mean, I'm thinking of the effort that led to the repeal of the Gallagher Amendment a few years ago or Ref C much further back than that. Yeah, I like Ref C as a point of comparison because, you know, that was way back in the 2000s. And <laughs> what it did was it let the state keep and spend a lot more refund money, not too different than uh, what Prop HH had proposed. But in that case, it was spearheaded by a Republican governor who teamed up with the Democratic mayor of Denver, truly bipartisan, lots of forces coming together because the state was facing a fiscal crisis and they came with this message of, uh, voters needing to make this change for the good of the whole state. Prop HH never had that kind of consensus, nothing close to it. 
it had a, a much less unified message. And as a result, it seems voters just didn't buy it. Okay, looking forward, Andy, what about property taxes? Without HH, do they now just go up and up? Yes, uh, so that's the big question now. And I spent a lot of time studying this property tax stuff in the last few months. And so what's happening is now homeowners, other business owners have seen their value appreciate by a lot. Mm -hmm. And the effects of that value appreciation are kicking in next year. It could mean 30, 40% increases in property taxes. But there are some kind of mediating factors. Your local government, for example, could decide to cut its rates. Maybe it decides, oh, we don't need all that extra property tax revenue. So in some ways, the ball or part of the ball is in the court of local governments to see if they want to grant a cut instead. But, you know, we're also hearing pressure at the statewide level for lawmakers to do something else. Now that Prop H has failed, Republicans want to see a special legislative session to tackle the topic before the year is over which is very soon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Democrats were not previously interested in that. They wanted to push HH their solution. But we'll see if now they're more receptive to that idea of special session. Andy, thanks. We're going to go right to the source, actually. Steve Fenberg is president of the state Senate, and the Boulder Democrat is likely to play a big role in what comes next. Senator, welcome. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Are you considering a special session, as Andy Kenny said, presumably before the end of the year to deal exclusively with property tax relief? Well, look, I, I think we are looking at many different options. At the end of the day, HH failed, but that doesn't mean people don't need property tax relief. I think there are some people that can stomach this increase and might even be happy about their value of their home going up. But a lot of people on fixed income, seniors, et cetera, they, they really are facing some troubling increase in their bills. And we need to do something about it. Um, I have always said, and I think the Democrats and the governor have generally said, we want to provide property tax relief, but not on the backs of our local governments and our teachers and our fire districts. And I will always be open to policy proposals that accomplish that goal. I haven't yet seen that uh, articulated in a way from the Republicans that I think accomplishes that adequately. So we're discussing options on what comes next, whether it's a special session or something in January when we come back into the regular session or a future ballot measure. I think uh, we're still having those conversations. Okay. Has that conversation included one with the governor about the potential for a special session? It, it has. It has. And do you feel a compunction to do this before the end of the year? You said that there's a possibility of waiting until the regular session starts in January, but is there some concern that's too late? Well, I don't think it's too late. I mean, look, HH was about a long-term solution, long-term tax relief in a way that's sustainable in the long term and doesn't Re re result in cuts to public services. So this really always has been a conversation about that long-term solution. Doing something in the next couple of weeks is not going to be about a long-term solution. It would be very short-term and temporary. So I think the, the big question still remains, which is where are we headed as a state from a policy perspective on how to provide property tax relief in a responsible way that doesn't harm our schools and other services. But wasn't HH rushed to the ballot in the first place? I mean, there was just that small amount of time between the end of the last session and when it qualified for the ballot. So I don't understand the difference of hurrying in the one instance and not in the other. 
Well, th there's a lot that goes on at the end of session, and it's a bit of a, a dizzying couple of weeks and couple of days at the end. But if if you think back to that 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 time period, long time ago in uh, in May, uh, there was a lot going on in on this conversation, and we were expecting that the the folks who were opposing HH and who were putting together an alternative proposal, Michael Fields, who I think you're going to be speaking to. He had filed a ballot measure for 2023 that many of us thought was going to be existential to our state and our fiscal health, which was what is now being referred to as Initiative 50, which he has since collected signatures to get on the 24 ballot. At the time, we had a couple of days left in session if we were going to refer something to the 23 ballot, and we suspected that he was moving forward. And if we didn't go forward, we thought he was going to. So we wanted to provide an option for voters that was sustainable that was responsible. And we had a couple of days to do it. It wasn't concocted in a couple of days. It was an ongoing conversation with the business community, local governments, stakeholders, the governor's office, et cetera, for, for weeks, if not months, um, frankly, in some ways, years, because there were previous bills before HH that did similar things in the building, but they were very much temporary and not meant or able to be long-term. Prop HH's defeat is indeed a victory for supporters of the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights. HH would have let the state keep more money each year instead of refunding it as Tabor calls for. Do you expect the legislature will take another stab at keeping more of that Tabor money? Let's get specific. Well, I, I don't think we are going to do uh, anything that is... Um, is is against the will of the voters. I, I, I can't predict what future legislatures do. Uh, may, maybe it was a short-term victory for uh, those ideologically uh, defending the Taxpayer Bill of Rights and everything about it. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a complicated topic. There's no question. I, I think at the end of the day, though, this ballot measure loss is is mostly a loss for people who are really feeling the squeeze of the rising cost of living. It's a, it's a loss for seniors. It's a loss for, um, for, for families that really can't afford to stay in their homes because of the rising cost of living that's happening around them. Um, I think that's going to continue to be the conversation, um, not about Tabor, but about what we can do to make sure that those who are most vulnerable aren't going to be in a, a bad situation where they can't afford to, to live their life in Colorado anymore. You invoked the will of the voters. What do you read the message to be of their will? <laughs> well, that's a really good question, Ryan. And I think, you know, everybody is going to have a slightly different opinion on that. I mean, he, here's here's my take, you know, less than 24 hours later. Mm -hmm. When you write policy, especially in the legislature, it, it's often complicated and it requires compromise, especially difficult policies like like this one. And you often end up with both sides of a debate somewhat unhappy. And and usually, you know, the rule of thumb is you, you probably found a, a middle ground that's that's good, reasonable policy when you when you get to that place, when when there's sort of consensus rather than one side winning overwhelmingly versus the other. When you translate that to a ballot measure, it is very difficult to get it across the finish line because if nobody is truly happy, then the only option they have is a yes or a no on that ballot. And it's hard to get to 50% in that scenario. So I, 
I don't think it was horrible policy and that's all there is to it. I think people were confused. People were frankly told that it does something other than what it actually does do. And we probably did put a little too much uh, into one ballot measure. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, uh, I still think the legislature operates best when it looks for compromise and it looks to uh, find a balanced approach forward. It turns out sometimes that strategy doesn't always apply uh, and is not always going to be successful when you're talking about a ballot measure. It took 12 pages in the Blue Book Voter Guide to explain it. There was a QR code for even more information. That is State Senate President Steve Fenberg, Democrat from Boulder and a sponsor of the bill that created Proposition HH. Relishing HH's defeat is Michael Fields. You've heard his name mentioned several times in the program so far. He's president of the think tank Advance Colorado. Hi, Michael. Hi, good to see you. Nice to see you, too. A photo of you has been on our homepage throughout the morning. It shows you holding one of those new black and white Colorado license plates. What does it say? It says Tabor 53. 53 is my favorite number and wanted to get one of those black license plates. It ended up coming in this week. Uh, but, you know, it's an issue that I work on a lot that has 70 percent support from Coloradans. And so I uh, decided to get Tabor on the license plate. 53 is your favorite number. Tabor may be your favorite constitutional, favorite constitutional amendment. amendment. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> How do you parse out HH's massive defeat? Um, how much do you think is this about Tabor refunds? How much is it about the complexity? As I said, just how many pages in the blue book it took to explain the thing? Yeah, it was 48 page bill. Uh, you know, the blue book it was very confusing as a measure. But I do think it has a lot to do with our taxpayers bill of rights. People like it. They got their Colorado cashback checks last year. Uh, and, you know, they looked at this and said, there's a property tax crisis. Uh, the legislature and governor need to come in, cut the rates, make sure this doesn't happen again, do that long term solution after Gallagher. That didn't come, and it didn't come in the form of Prop HH. And so I think, you know, this is a simple measure could be passed, two, three sentences, not 48 pages. And I think, uh, you know, the fact that there wasn't a lot of collaboration, that there was uh, not, you know, not a lot of time that this went through uh, the legislature. And ultimately, though, that it was touching those Tabor refunds didn't have to do that. Uh, you can do a straight cut and make sure that government has plenty of money anyway. Um, but this was, you know, a property tax increase that's going to be hard for seniors, hard for people on fixed income. And now we're kind of back at square one where the legislature needs to step up and do something before next year uh, in order to make sure that there's some property tax relief. I mean, it's interesting as the state Senate president, Steve Fenberg, described it. It was a bit of a game of chicken because the legislature knew that your measure was on the horizon. And I just want to explain to people, Initiative 50 would cap property tax revenue increases at 4% per year. It indeed has already won a place on next year's ballot. You talk about the solution being possibly simpler. You know, in the conversations I had, for instance, with Governor Jared Polis about HH, he said it's it's hard to make these things simple, given the thousands of taxing entities in Colorado, from school districts to fire departments. So is a measure like Initiative 50, is it too one-size-fits-all, Michael? 
I don't think so. And I think partially because we also allow voters to approve to go to a higher number than that 4%. But I think ultimately the reason that, you know, uh, Initiative 50 got signatures so quickly, the, the fastest it's ever, any measures ever gotten signatures, people, you know, we look at polling on this very high support for it is because people don't think that government should be growing faster than their wages. And that 4% number, wages over the last 20 years go up about 3%. Inflation over that time is about 3%. Uh, and they think, you know what, we should be more, in, it shouldn't be a 30 or 40% increase. It should be more in line with how much people's income is going up. And so that's why this, this measure is so popular. And because the legislature failed to act. You know, we don't want to have to go bring measures. It's expensive. It's hard to do. We would love if the legislature and governor came in, had a reasonable number to cap property taxes at, they just haven't done that. And they tried to say, you know, my property taxes were going to go from 41 to 35%. That is too high for people. And so if the legislature steps up in the meantime and, and caps something, we would absolutely, you know, not move forward with our measure. I just don't have confidence hearing the Senate president that he's going to do that. Okay. That was my next question is whether you would withdraw Initiative 50 if you saw something that you agreed with from the legislature. Does that mean you'd like to see a special session before the end of the year, is that something that you think Republicans in the legislature will continue to press for? Yeah, I think you have to have a special session if you don't want to see this spike early next year. You know, he talked about the long term solution, but people are going to get their bills and it's going to be 35, 40, 50 percent higher. Uh, they have to deal with that right away. So absolutely would love the legislature to call a special session. Uh, that long term solution might come in the session uh, this next year. But ultimately, you know, there's two things that need to happen. One is a cut to the immediate uh, increase that's about to happen. Two, that there has to be a cap on how much they can go up because this could happen in the future in two, four, six years uh, because the Gallagher Amendment isn't there anymore. We could see huge spikes in the future. Legislature knows that can happen. They need to step up and do something now. You know, one thing that always struck me about HH is that it targeted homeowners, relief for homeowners, but it did so on the backs of folks who may not own homes, yeah. who may be renters. And uh, indeed, who, as you say, like their Tabor refunds. Yeah. Did you I, think that was an imbalance to some yeah, extent? I, I think this is why you saw broad opposition, right? The 60% 20-point margin was because it wasn't just people who like uh, Tabor. It was it was renters, too, who said, what do we get out of this deal? There Our was rent, some rent relief. There, a little bit, $20 million, yeah. but that's very small with how many, you know, a third of the state rents. Uh, and they're going to see a huge increase in rent because property taxes are going up so high. That's going to be passed along to them anyway. So I think there was a frustration uh, that, you know, this wasn't fixed fixing the problem. And it was actually harming some people in the process. And local governments were upset that they weren't involved in the, in the discussions. So it was kind of, you know, when you have a 20 point margin, it ends up being this big. Uh, there's a lot of people that are upset for a lot of reasons. There were obviously elections outside of Colorado last night, and there's a lot of tea leaves read about what that means for the political parties in general, certainly heading into 2024. Do you read anything in this vote? In terms of the the place of Republicans in Colorado, I mean, you're a minority party uh, statewide and in the legislature. Look, I think you can build off of of, of wins like this. Um, ultimately, though, you know, there's a lot of things that happen in presidential elections, how that impacts partisan races. I mean, in odd years, you have ballot measures that can have, you know, support or disagreement from R's, U's and D's. Uh, you have, you know, school board and city council races that are nonpartisan. It's a very different environment and the voters who show up in order to do it. So I don't know how much you can read into it, but it's definitely better for conservatives and Republicans that this happened last night. It does give something, you know, a coalition that, that came together, worked together 
together. And, you know, the, the Democrats did this a long time ago where they built up over year after year after year. Uh, can Republicans do that and make a comeback? We'll see. But it's obviously a blue state right now that is still fiscally conservative, uh, still weighs in on certain issues and says, just because Governor Polis told me that doesn't mean that I'm going to do it. Um, so I think there's a lot to build off of from this. Maybe just a little purple, just a little purplish. A little bit. Yeah. Michael, thanks so much. Thanks for having me Michael on. Fields, president of Advance Colorado, the conservative think tank, helped defeat Proposition HH. There was another statewide measure on the ballot, Prop II. It lets the state hold on to all the tobacco and nicotine taxes it's collected and use them for universal preschool instead of having to refund a portion. Voters liked II more than they disliked HH. They passed it by more than 20 points. Jake Williams is the CEO of the nonprofit Healthier Colorado, which backed the proposal. Colorado voters of all political stripes gave Colorado kids a huge win. And as a result, more kids across the state will have access to more hours of free preschool. And this victory is going to pay dividends for years and generations because research shows that when you give kids access to quality early childhood education, that they are way more likely to live healthier, more successful lives. Williams also says there is an additional value in the tobacco and nicotine sales tax. Studies show it reduces the number of young people who start smoking or vaping. Let's also check in on some of the local races and issues across the state, starting with the mayor's contest in Aurora. It appears voters there have re-elected Mike Kaufman to a second term. We're awaiting final numbers, but he declared victory last night. Those people that supported me believe that everyone in the city, regardless of where they lived, have a right to live without a, a fear of being a victim of a crime. And I think... Uh, they, they want to result on uh, homelessness, on the encampments. Uh, and we're going to move forward with with, with uh, being more aggressive about abatements, but also being more aggressive about treatment. And then uh, on affordable housing, we're committed uh, under Proposition 123 uh, to increase our affordable housing inventory by 3% year over year. And we're, we're going to deliver on that. And so I just want to thank the voters of the city of Aurora for having confidence in me. And I'm not going to lay it down. We're going to move forward with, with leadership uh, to, to make Aurora a better place. You'll excuse some of the field audio there. Meanwhile, police accountability remains a major issue in Aurora following the death of Elijah McClain. The city is under a consent decree meaning there's state oversight because of a pattern of systemic racism. Early results suggest voters in Colorado Springs are a no on paying for a new police training facility. They were asked to let the city keep just under $5 million in Tabor refunds to help cover the cost, which could be upwards of $45 million. Colorado Springs Mayor Yemi Mobilade called the measure a chance for residents to collectively help fund a suffering police service. Critics questioned the need for that funding. The measure came as the department faces lawsuits over use of force. Mobilade has said the city would move forward with the facility despite the apparent results of this ballot question. Turning to some election results in southwestern Colorado, spring floods drenched the Dolores School campus. Residents even worked Easter Sunday to divert water that damaged a gym floor. 
Well, voters in that school district have come together again, this time to approve a bond to build a new high school. I'm honored. I'm, I'm happy, elated. I mean, I've got a lot of adjectives I could use that of just all the things, you know, and I'm, I'm just thankful that the, that the people of Dolores saw what we saw, which was that these schools need to be repaired. The flood mitigation is a big thing, and we've got to fix the flooding issues. Uh, you know, we're tired of filling sandbags. This is for our future. This is for our kids, and so it's a good thing. That is Superintendent Reese Blinko. The current high school was built in 1954. It will be remodeled for middle schoolers, and an entirely new high school will be built in Dolores. The target date for move-in is 2026. Mesa County voters rejected proposals to extend term limits for some elected officials. The offices of the assessor, surveyor, treasurer, and clerk and recorder will remain capped at two four-year terms. Mesa County Commissioner Cody Davis had hoped the extensions would pass. People like term limits, and I can respect that, so it doesn't surprise me. I think people are always hesitant of elected officials and being in there a long time and being a career politician, if you will. Although I don't really view these positions as politicians. They're technical experts, but hey, people have spoken and I got to respect that. And Davis says he has no plans to make the request of voters again anytime soon. The mayor's race in Pueblo is likely headed for a January runoff. No single candidate has gotten a majority of the votes, and so the top two will move forward. As of late last night, Pueblo City Council President Heather Graham received about 23 percent. Incumbent Mayor Nick Gratisar landed about 21. As for the total number of Coloradans who voted in this off-year election, we're still waiting for a final tally. Heading into Election Day, only about a fifth of eligible voters had cast ballots. Registered Democrats and Republicans were almost evenly split. The largest turnout appears to be in Arapahoe, El Paso, and Jefferson counties. In the end, the Secretary of State says turnout was trending to be higher than the elections of 2019 and 2021, also off years. Keep CPR.org close for ongoing coverage. And Colorado Matters returns in this next half hour with a survival story from the attack on Club Q. That says our series marking a year continues. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. It's not only like paint on a wall, it's like culture on a wall, and that's meaningful. Check out Off the Walls, a new podcast about the stories and the people behind Denver's street art. It was exactly what the community needed at the time that it was being put up. Off the Walls on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. With support from Janice Henderson Investors. It's been nearly a year since five people were killed, 17 injured in the attack at an LGBTQ club in Colorado Springs. John Arcidiano survived, but can't shake the violence he witnessed. He hopes sharing his story will bring about acceptance of diverse communities. As he talks about how his life has changed, he remembers Derek Rump and Daniel Aston, two of his friends who were killed that night. A caution, his story includes graphic descriptions of gun violence and its impacts. 
The day after it happened, I just got in my car, packed a bag. Uh, I, would, I went up to Denver for a few days and stayed with friends there. And one of the best things that they did for me, which I, I've thanked them for, is, you know, they gave me a couple days to like kind of go through my emotions and be very depressed and grieve and not really interact with people. And they were like, okay, enough is enough. We're gonna reintroduce you to queer spaces so that you are not forever jaded. And so they took me to a couple of the queer-owned bars throughout Denver. I just remember there was moments that I had to step out or I had an emotional breakdown or um, I would dissociate completely. I'd sit there and I'd just look around at all the people and I'd think to myself, these people have no idea what could happen right now. They're all in here having a good time, laughing, and they don't realize somebody literally could come in and ruin everything in, in less than 30 seconds. And that's all I could think about to myself. But at the end of the day, I think that it saved me years of trauma and potential for never going back to those spaces because of what happened. When I first moved here, it was September of 2021. And um, like I have no friends, no family, nothing out here. So it was a really big move for me. And my first visit to Club Q was on Thanksgiving because I work in the restaurant industry, so I wasn't able to go home for Thanksgiving. So I found a bar that was open on Thanksgiving and I went in there and that was my beginnings of Club Q, my first introduction with Derek. And what Club Q became to me was monumental from that moment forward. And it wasn't just the bar itself, it was Derek and Daniel that brought that light to this community. They could pull anybody together. They were the people that intertwined with everybody. I saw Derek, you know, introduce people just to start talking because somebody was alone at the bar. It taught me a valuable lesson coming out of the New York queer scene, how a small community can really thrive in a town that may not necessarily always think that they're the best people. I remember the second weekend, there was still reports coming out about it. And I remember going through and reading what people were saying on Facebook, comments about it, about this is ridiculous, stop reporting about it, who cares if died, you know, this is getting old, you're perpetuating this whole gay movement. And that just goes to show you how much work we still have to do in acceptance as a society um, and how cold people can truly be because while this may not directly impact them, my life is forever changed and I will never be the same person and I don't know if I will ever be normal again. And these people get to go on living their lives, but I will always know the nasty comment that I read about why you're still covering this story when I literally watch my friend bleed out on the floor and die right in front of me. There's always going to be that thought in the back of my mind that this could happen at any second. I'm always very hypervigilant. Um, I work in the restaurant industry. This has been my whole life. You know, I've done this for 15 years. And the anxiety I feel walking in my door when a restaurant's full is extremely overwhelming. It has challenged everything that I, th I was really good at. You know, how do you go from being a person who is exceptional at their job? I w I'm an extremely gifted operator. I'm done many things in, in my business to increase revenue. And now I look at it and I'm like, you were so good at this once upon a time. And now you struggle with 
the things that you used to be amazing or excel at. Some of the days are difficult. And last week I went to bed and about three in the morning, I shot up having a massive panic attack because I had a dream about Club Q. And Derek was on my mind all week. And massive panic attacks can come on at any moment. I've been on my floor here in the middle of a busy restaurant and I've had a massive panic attack and I've had to step off the floor. You wanna think that you're okay and you try to go on living your life, but your life is never gonna be the same. There's no normalcy anymore because your privacy and your sense of safety has completely been violated on every level imaginable. And it's all because of who I am as a human. And that, that's, a, that's a hard pill to swallow. There are many of us who do not want Club Q to reopen. The reality is you cannot ask for our money from the LGBTQIA community if you're not gonna stand up and be a strong voice for our community. And the owner of that bar has done nothing other than opening his bar. There's not many queer spaces in this city. You were a pillar and you've done nothing. I think the only thing that, you know, I can say in all of this is the fact that you never think you're going to go through an event like this. I think that what I want people to know is something of this magnitude changes you to the core. There really is a part of me that mentally or internally died that night that I will never see again. And it's really trying to learn how to rebuild my life and what is the new norm and figuring out who I am from this point forward um, because something of that magnitude, it changes you forever and ever. That is John Arcidiano, a survivor of the Club Q shooting in Colorado Springs. John's story was produced by KRCC's Abigail Beckman as the year mark approaches November 19th. Read all four profiles in our series at krcc.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? Is there actually a spring in Colorado Springs? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the CPR newsroom. And we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. Made possible in part by the Colorado Health Foundation. Denver Mayor Mike Johnston wants help caring for migrants arriving from Central and South America. He traveled to Washington last week to ask for assistance. Denverites Kevin Beatty reports that some migrants have ended up on the streets. It is a cold morning in Denver, and police officers have arrived at a cluster of tents set up across the street from a motel. The building has been a shelter for newly arrived migrants for months, but people can only stay so long. Some who were kicked out decided to sleep here, outside. Carlos Alberto Jeppe and his wife and two kids traveled for months from Venezuela to get here. Jeppe said they had to move out of the hotel this morning because officials discovered they were keeping a little dog in their room. It's against the rules. We don't have anything, he tells the officers. 
I didn't come to beg on the street, I came to work. The city has offered short-term help for people like Jeppe, but they say they can't help everyone forever. Many people leaving this motel can't work in the U.S. legally, and they don't know where they'll sleep once they leave. Denver's mayor, Mike Johnston, knows people are falling through holes in this safety net. Uh, we're keenly aware of that. We don't want kids out there on the streets. We'll continue to focus on how to make sure we can provide the services there um, and how to balance, obviously, the need to be welcoming to newcomers and to make sure we have the resources to pay for other critical city services. Last week, Johnston went to D.C. with mayors from places like Los Angeles and Chicago to ask for help striking that balance. They didn't get a meeting with the president, but they spoke with his staff. Federal budget negotiations are coming up, and these mayors want Biden to more than triple the cash he's already promised to help the cities pay for shelter and services. We think the current path is unsustainable, but we think there is a way to really resolve this situation that works for the newcomers that are arriving and works for the cities that are receiving them. Work authorization, Johnson says, underpins all of this. We can't keep someone up in a hotel for five years. Uh, so what we do need to do ultimately is get them access to housing and to work. That is what Jeanibel Fernandez is hoping for. He was also booted from the motel on a recent morning, while the people he traveled with were allowed to stay a little longer. What I have is just $3, he says. He's hoping he'll find a future here, or wherever he's allowed to work and settle down. Kevin Beatty, Denverite. On Thursday, leading up to Veterans Day, a vestige of the attack on Pearl Harbor will be on display at the Colorado Freedom Memorial in Aurora. The relic commemorates the sacrifice of Coloradans who died on the USS Arizona. The battleship was destroyed when the Japanese bombed Hawaii in 1941. To this day, it is the final resting place for 32 sailors from our state. A beam from the battleship arrived in Colorado, its new permanent home, in August. A mostly silent ceremony marked its arrival. Nikki Stratton helped get the relic to Colorado. Her granddad survived the attack. His dying wish was that no one would ever forget Pearl Harbor, especially no one would ever forget USS Arizona. Um, And seeing the people out here, I think he would just be smiling because this is his dying wish fulfilled. The artifact was flown to Denver and loaded into the back of a black SUV. I think he would have gotten probably the best kick out of the motorcade that we had coming from DIA. Uh, He absolutely loved whenever he had a motorcade and thought it was the best thing possible. Nikki Stratton led a short, somber procession. It took six service members to carry the heavy crate to the heart of the memorial, where it was opened. It's definitely a pretty large piece, much larger than I thought it was going to be. Air Force Master Sergeant Carlin Leslie came from nearby Buckley Space Force Base to witness the arrival. It's incredible to think of the rust and the the way the metal looks, the tarnishness of it, but that's obviously survived for this many years, and it's survived for a reason, because people have taken care of it to honor it and to make sure that that doesn't ever get forgotten. Leslie brought his daughters, four-year-old Lacey and two-year-old Riley. They clung to him, and the eldest had a question. So she goes, what's the piece of metal? I said, well, it's just, it's from a big ship. I'm not afraid to tell her about history. History is important, obviously, in this day and age. So having her understand what that means, that there's individuals that are still on the USS Arizona, and we plan to go look at pictures of the ship when we get into the car, right? And kind of explain it more of what that means and what that looks like. Master Sergeant Leslie expounded, for me, on the idea that the Arizona, a piece of which is now in Colorado, 
remains a watery grave. But this is a way to recover those individuals, to bring them back to the state of Colorado. It's the most dignified transfer that they may ever get in their entire lives, um, and especially for their families to have that kind of closure. Yeah, it's not a body. Yeah, it's not a piece of a relic of them, but it's a relic of what they served for and what they represented for our American freedom. Now, just before the beam arrived, I spoke with Rick Crandall, who founded the Colorado Freedom Memorial and who led the effort to obtain this relic from the USS Arizona. And welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Thanks. So where on the ship did this piece of metal come from and why is it important to you to have in Colorado? Well, important to me because at the Colorado Freedom Memorial, we honor all Coloradans killed in action since we became a state, over 6,300 names on the memorial. And included on those in that group of names, 32 that are still resting on the Arizona. So to have this fragment, this relic from Arizona, its whereabouts, we know it comes from a beam uh, aboard Arizona. We've been told that much. And I can't tell you what this means to us. And I think a lot of people in Colorado, we play a lot of symbolism at the Colorado Freedom Memorial. We can't bring those remains, those bodies back home. Mm. So we look for ways we can get them closer. And this is another opportunity. Symbolically, by having the steel here, we in some sense bring them here. Just to put a finer point on that, the, the bodies are trapped. The bodies yep. can't be removed. And that is seen as their final resting That's right. place. That's right. And so the idea of bringing the steel here is to bring a piece of Colorado's service home. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and what a remarkable piece. Do you know the size of it? Yeah, it's uh, at its length. It's it's kind of shaped like a like a ruler. It's well, it's about eighteen inches at its widest at the top, and about two feet long, and so um, it's got a narrow point. Uh, you see the rivets, which really identify it with mm. Arizona. Of course, the Arizona is underwater with a memorial built over it that mm-hmm. almost two million people visit a year. You've been there yep. as well. Yep. How is a piece of metal from the ship even available? Explain that to me. Yeah, right. good. That, my first question as well, right? <laughs> so wait a minute, we're cutting it apart? No, actually, when when Arizona sank and when, when the other ships sank at Pearl on December 7th, 41, as they began to clean the harbor days and weeks later, Anything that was still above the water level on those ships that had sunk was cut off below water, and it was towed ashore. So pieces of Arizona, pieces of the West Virginia, pieces of Maryland, Utah, they they all went and have been there for 80 years. Stored somewhere, I Just on the shore. They're not even indoors anywhere. The the steel has been laying there for all that time. And uh, that's where this comes from. And the idea, I guess, is that they wanted to make this available to certain Mm. groups across the country. Because though, uh, you know, the memorial is in Hawaii, Mm -hmm. I think as you've hinted, it is an embodiment of service from all over the country. Absolutely. Yeah. So you you had to apply then, I guess. We did. um, Just over a year ago. And it actually was Nikki who first led me there. Um, Nikki has become a great friend of the Colorado Freedom Memorial and uh, and we of her. And she said, you know, you should should send them a note. You should ask. And so uh, we did and and were approved. And uh, that program started in 1961, I think it is, early 60s. And over the years, 
years, they've given a total of now about 150 pieces of pieces. steel relics from Arizona to groups and organizations uh, across the country with the promise of, you know, how it's going to be handled and displayed. We're going to do some public um, presentations of the seal beginning in November. It'll give us time to build a proper display case and, and to be able to show it, uh, you know, the way it should be shown. I mean, I'll be curious to what extent having the artifact here might draw people out of the woodwork. Mm -hmm you know, who maybe heard a story yeah. in their family or think they have a connection yes. and, and perhaps do some deeper yes. research. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I look forward to that, I hope. I know that your hope one day is to have a visitor's center yes. at the Colorado Freedom Memorial in Aurora. And, and I guess the piece would be permanently housed there. It would be. It would be. We're, we're raising money now, doing our best at that. We've submitted plans to the city. Everything is, seems to be moving at a pretty good, even pace at this point. The Colorado Freedom Memorial Education and Visitor Center, that would have a 100-seat theater in it, would have a classroom in it, would have an exhibit hall where this relic from Pearl would be you know, the, one of the main attractions of the exhibits are there. We do uh, own a piece of steel from the World Trade Center, um, from uh, where the first plane struck. Is that through a similar program um, where they were distributed? It's through an organization back east called the Freedom Flag Foundation. They, they actually are an organization trying to create a national flag of remembrance for the attacks at the World Trade Center on 9-11. Um, you mentioned earlier that you have about 6,300 names of yeah. Coloradans is it who, who died in service? So the criteria for uh, recognition on the memorial uh, died on the battlefield, right? Died on the battlefield or from wounds suffered directly on the battlefield uh -huh. since we became a state. So it's the Spanish-American War through today. Do you still add names then? Uh, Do you find stories? Sadly, record keeping in the military in the early days wasn't the best. So we still find names from World War One, from World War Two. Families often will notify us. You know, my I think my grandfather should be on the memorial and isn't. So we'll start doing research and and confirm that. And then, yeah, we uh, we have names that uh, I, I I'd say every month we at least one and and likely more. Wow. Yeah. In that way, though it honors the dead, it's a very living memorial. Very. Yeah. I tell people those words exactly all the time. This is a living monument. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, I enjoyed every minute. Rick Crandall is founder and executive director of the Colorado Freedom Memorial. We spoke in August as part of a metal beam from the USS Arizona, which sank at Pearl Harbor, arrived in Colorado. It will be on display at the memorial Thursday evening in Aurora, ahead of Veterans Day. And that is Colorado Matters for now. With special thanks to Michelle P. Fulcher and Anthony Cotton, I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News and KRCC.